Today's text from John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. And good morning to you. I'm Joel Wayne, and one of the pastors here. It's good to have you. Um, And I'm excited to be opening up the word of God with you today. Uh, We're in John chapter 17, a series called, we only have this week and one more week. It's a series called No Middle Ground. We walk through the first 10 chapters, one per week, very quickly, trying to force ourselves to give you language that you could then leave, walk out of these doors, tell other people about, hey, this is what John 3 is saying. This is what John 7 is saying. This is what John 10 is saying. Uh, And now today, John 17. Um, And it's exciting for us to be able to look at this because this is a very significant chapter in the Word of God. And if you have a Bible, a pen, paper, maybe you want to use your phone, there's some pretty significant notes for you to better take today. Why? Because this is the high priestly prayer. Um, This is Jesus praying the night before he is to give his life. Um, I'll give you some prayers in the Bible that are significant. I'm going to give you four or five right now to let you understand the significance of even what's happening in John chapter 17. Uh, One of the prayers that we would look at is is Solomon's prayer. If you want to write these down really quickly, it it may be fun for you to go with some family or some friends later throughout this week and say, hey, let's read through these prayers together so that we can learn from them. All right. Um, So 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's prayer is one of them. Abraham's prayer in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham's prayer in Genesis 18. Um, Moses' prayer in Exodus chapter 32 is a big one. I would say all of Paul's prayers. I mean, you look at all of them, but I would give you Ephesians 3 as one of those to reference. I also look at the Lord's prayer. We all know that. Our Father who are in, hallowed be your, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be on earth as it is in There you go. Look at you. Everybody feel a little smarter right now? Um, That's Matthew chapter 6, if you don't know, the Lord's Prayer. I look at John 17, and yes, you have the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. I look at John 17 as Jesus' prayer. I know you're going to, it's really the same thing. I get it, but just go with me for a moment. I look at it as Jesus' prayer. He is the high priest, so it's the high priestly prayer. Um, And we need to understand why it is so significant. It's 632 words. It is the longest prayer that we have from Jesus Christ. Now, we do know that he went away. It says sometimes he went away for the night and he prayed to his heavenly father. So we know that he spent extended time in prayer. But in terms of something that we have recorded, we're looking at this as being the longest prayer that we have from Jesus Christ in John chapter 17, 632 words. What I believe that this prayer does is it gives us insight into who Jesus is. One of the things that I love to tell people, and I often ask this question. Uh, I remember I was... uh, Um, 
I, this last Monday, Tuesday, I went up to Vermont for a pastor's conference, about 40, 45 pastors and their spouses. And we're up there and we're just building relationships and pouring into them. These are people just fighting for the kingdom and fighting for the gospel. And let me tell you, there's a movement that's taking place. Um, we had about an hour before we had to go to the airport. It's freezing cold, and somebody came up with a good idea of like, hey, they have a, a Frisbee disc golf outside. Let's go play. I was like, guys, it's cold. They're like, you're from Michigan. Suck it up. And so I, I took that as a double dog dare. And so I went. I'm not going to say who won, but his name's Joel. Um, and we're walking around the course. And I just said, guys, I just got one question for you. What are you praying about more right now than anything else? I love asking people that question. The reason I like asking that question, I think you learn a lot about someone and what they're praying for. That's, that's, if you're ever like wanting to go a little deeper with someone and you're not quite sure how to do it, right, just look at them and say, hey, how, what are you praying for the most right now so I can know better about how to pray for you? You learn a lot about someone in their prayers. And I tell you, we learn a lot about Jesus, I believe as well, in his prayers. We're going to learn a lot about Jesus's posture. The high priestly prayer reveals the heart of Jesus, his posture of humility and compassion. We learn a lot about who Jesus is. It reminds us of who Jesus is. Now, this is during Passover. All of these things are unfolding. Um, and I need to give you a little bit of the context because you've got to understand. So Jesus, a few years prior, he began his, his messianic ministry. He's walked through life preaching about the Heavenly Father, preaching about the kingdom of God that is to come, preaching about how to find eternal life. And it's, it's this dichotomy between, okay, wait a second. Here are all these people wanting to follow Jesus Christ because of the miracles that he could do for them. And then you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. What they're doing is coming and saying, wait, what are you doing? You're healing on the Sabbath. You can't do this. So he's living this life of being pushed and pulled and torn back and forth, even though he is the perfect lamb of God. This is the life that he's been living. And he knows the hostility that exists within the world. In fact, just before John 17, uh, in John 16, verse 33, last verse, right before it walks into John 17, right? This is an important verse for us. It tells us, it says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So he's like, hey, guys, I want you to have peace. He knows that the next day he's about to give his life. He's been walking this journey. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. Does anybody believe that there's tribulation in the world today? Yes? So he says, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but this is where we sometimes feel. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You ever met someone who only lives in the tribulation and they have forgotten to live in part B of verse 33, which is, but guess what? Jesus has overcome the world. Be a good evaluation for all of us today. Are you only living in the fact in the world there is much tribulation or are you living right now in the fact that he has already overcome the world and that we have life through Jesus Christ, that this is temporary, that is eternal, that we get to have a relationship with the eternal God through his son, Jesus Christ, that wells up within us and creates this joy or are you only living in the tribulation? 
So he is unfolding all of this. He's been walking through his messianic ministry. He has faced people who love him, faced people who hate him. He's concluded years of preaching and healing. It's now he just had the last supper with the disciples. He's even told one of his disciples, Judas, that, hey, listen, you're going to betray me. All of this is happening. And so now he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to pray. It's a high priestly prayer. And think about that. He knows he and the Father are one. Even in this chapter, it speaks about who he was for eternity with the Heavenly Father. He knows what is about to come. And so imagine that prayer. I know that tomorrow I will bleed out. And yet in doing such, this is going to be my prayer. You learn, you learn a lot about someone in that situation, don't you? In numerous ways, Jesus Christ has come to the end. He's done nothing but give glory to the Father, and now he's going to come to a place where there's really not much left to do but to give his life, to die. But before all that, before they come into the garden, before they arrest him, before they take him to be judged even more, before they beat him and whip him and flog him and throw a whip on him that has got bone in it to rip the flesh out before they nail him to the cross after he carries it to the, to the top of the mount. Before all of these happen, he needs to pray. And he gives you context. I would, um, I'm going to do my very best to simplify John 17. And I'm going to give it to us, hopefully, in a way that you can best understand it, easily understand it, that what, really the goal is that it gives you enough to make you go, I want to know more. There's no way I can unpack all of this. This could be a, a month-long series easily. But here's, here are two, I'm going to give you two phrases and four parts that we're going to walk through. I'm just going to give it to you right now. I didn't do this in the first service. I wish I would have. I'm going to give you two phrases that summarize John 17. God's glory... This is not on the screen. God's glory, our unity. God's glory, our unity. God's, God's, our, God's, our, got to remember this. And I'm going to give it to you in four parts. We're going to break up the chapter in four different parts. John chapter 17, 1 through 5 is the first part. Our relation, and this is how I want to summarize it, is our relationship with God. And it's really about giving the Heavenly Father glory. So I want to read these verses to you right now. John chapter 17, 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Uh, isn't that interesting? He, it does not say, and he bowed his head and closed his eyes. And he put his hands in between, all together, nice and close. It doesn't say, even though that's what we normally do. It says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. He knows what's to come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom have give, he have, you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's saying, I, it, it is done. I, I've done the work you have called me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I, ha- I had with you before the world existed. So you want to talk about even the, def- the, the significant of Trinity, before the world existed. He knew he had been with him before the world existed. You can go into all of that too. But this is about giving recognition to the relationship that, that Jesus has with God. And he calls it out. He's like, all glory to God. Give me glory only so that I can heap glory on you. Just before his greatest time of hardship, Jesus ends up praying for himself, but with, with zero selfishness. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to pray for myself, but with zero selfishness. How so? God, help me receive glory only so that I can take all that glory and just put it upon you. You are my heavenly father. The desire of Jesus was that his actions, and he knew, he just said, hey, listen, my time is complete. My time is up. And his prayer is that his actions, his words, his life would give glory to the heavenly father. Isn't that the posturing that we should be having? That our relationships, our marriages, our friendships, the way we conduct business, the way we work, the way that we speak to our children, where we spend our time when it comes to our habits, what you're about to do the rest of the afternoon. You're like, some of you can't wait. You're like, man, it's a snowy day. It's going to be amazing. And some of you are like, let's go sledding with the entire neighborhood and tell everyone about Jesus. But some of you are like, let's cuddle up and just do nothing but watch 14 hours of Netflix. And some of you, right? Anybody watched a Hallmark movie this year, right? And we're just, none of that's bad, but where you spend your habit, like where you spend your time matters. Again, none of that's bad. But what I'm saying is in all things, Jesus was saying, I want God to receive all glory. In all things, our relationships, our habits, where we spend our energy, where we spend our time, we should be going, wait a second, am I, am I heaping glory at the feet of the Heavenly Father? He speaks about, in verse 2 and 3, he's speaking about the source that he has and the nature of eternal life. Right? He, it's, it's claiming that and, and acknowledging his deity. Eternal life means that we are alive, that we're, and, and we're active to God's movement, to God's environment, and what he's up to. Jesus glorified God from the time of his birth to the dedication in the temple, to all of his years in Nazareth, and then his baptism in Matthew 3, his testing in the wilderness in four, uh, Matthew chapter 4, and then with the Sermon on the Mount when he begins that ministry, and all the way since, he is giving glory to the Heavenly Father. Every sermon that he preached, every blind person that he healed, every sick person that he healed, every single miracle that he performed, in all things, in all ways, in all words, he gave glory to the Heavenly Father. That is our goal. That is our desire. Jesus asked the Father to glorify him so that he could glorify the Father. So it's all about our relationship with God and giving him glory. I told you, God's glory, our unity. God's our, you're going to see more of that. Why? Because the second part is not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with the world. Now, there's, again, there's a lot of ways I can break this up. 
but I'm trying to simplify it as best I can. 6 through 19, John 17, 6 through 19, our relationship with the world. He, sa- he begins this by saying, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's talking about his disciples, his followers, okay? That's another way. He's like, man, the disciples, the, the, their relationship, our relationship with the world. So he's speaking about this, their relationship with the world. He's like, man, listen. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. No, they, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. So my disciples and their relationship with, that they have with the world, he's like, I'm praying for them. I, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I'm glorified in them, he says at the end of verse 10. And I am no longer in the world, verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's like, I know I'm coming to you, but they're still here and there's persecution and there's hardship. I'm coming to you. So Holy Father, he says, verse 11, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one, even as I am one with you. I've been here, he tells us in verse five, since the very beginning, since existence, he's talking about that oneness. And now he's praying for them to encounter the same thing. He said, may they know this. That's why I say God's glory, our unity. You're about to see this unity, the, the importance of it. He's praying for that type of bond, that type of relationship, that they would be united together. He's like, I have guarded them, but not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, which he was just with the last supper, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, verse 13 and following. He says, but you can look at this right here. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We know it's going to be hard. We know it's going to be difficult. And he says, may they have that joy. May they understand that I've already come to, and I've conquered the world. John 16, 33. Right? Some of us only live in the hard. We don't live in the fact that we've got a redeemer. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So he's praying for their relationship that they have with the world, right? I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's not saying, God, remove them. He's like, just keep them from the evil one. Let them live in the world so they can give glory to me, right? They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world. Jesus is speaking of his mission among the disciples, their receptivity to it, and now he's praying that they would also represent Christ in the midst of the world. This is all about the believer's relationship with the world. And he does not pray to remove them from it. He prays that they would know how to go on mission into it. So it's all about the relationship of these disciples with the world. And then third part, 17, 20 through 23, is our relationship with other believers. It's all about our relationship with other believers He's like, and, and the believers that are to come. He says, I don't ask these things. He's like, listen, I do not ask for these things only. 
It was a transition, verse 20. He's like, okay, I asked for that with the relationship with all these disciples of the world. I'm, I'm talking about that, but I'm not, all, I'm not only praying about that. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So now he's praying for the future believer. He's praying for us that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 22. This is all about unity. He's praying for the unity of the future believers and the unity of the bride of Christ as they move forward to represent Jesus, to represent the heavenly father and to give glory to his name. And friends, let me tell you right now, one of the greatest, one of the strongest, one of the most important aspects of any ministry is the unity of the body of believers. Right? I know John and Jackie, dear friends, they're up here talking to you about the facilities and talking about, listen, this is just a tool. This, this is not, what is most important in this place is unity. And some of you are so kind to me and you come and you're like, hey, how can I best pray for you? The greatest prayer that you can have is to always pray for the unity of Chapel Point, for the believers within it, because it's through that unity that we can take this community by storm with the gospel of Jesus. Because the greatest division amongst believers and amongst not only churches, but all organizations today is a lack of unity. They want different things and their preferences and their opinions, they, they, begun, they just start rising up. And as a result of that, there's a lack of unity. You see it in all types of organizations. You, have different, you want different things. And as a result of wanting different things, things are divided. And then out of that grows hostility. And out of that grows hatred. It happens in churches. It starts with this. Can you believe that that man painted that wall. My grandmother's great aunt's best friend painted that wall in 1812. I don't care if it was flaking. I don't care if it had mold and asbestos. That was my great mother's great aunt's best friend's wall. Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? 20 years ago, it was like, can you believe? They, they have chairs? Everybody hated chairs until they recognized that chairs have cushions on the back, too. <laughs> and then they had people like me come and remind them, if you really want to be in the New Testament church, get rid of all of it. And all of a sudden, people want their preferences, and they want, oh, man, but you've got to have wood walls. Like, really? They, they don't really have wood in Israel. It's a bunch of rocks. One of the greatest commodities that they literally had was wood because it was so rare. You see what I'm saying? Like all of a sudden, a lack of unity. All of a sudden, there's this division that starts to well up. And so Jesus, the night before, I keep saying, I'm going to keep saying it over and over because you've got to understand, if, this, if, if he knows his life is about to end and this is what he's praying for, don't you think that's something we should be learning from? Maybe? A little bit? Yes? God's? What is it? God's our. If that's what we should be praying is that we heap glory at the feet of the heavenly father and that we have unity as the believers. We should be praying for this, friends. And this talks about our relationship with other people. He's like, I don't only ask for the disciples as they stay in the world, but I'm praying for those who are to still come and to believe in me that they may be one because the glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. 
I'll give you another passage, even when it comes about the power of unity. And if you want to pray for even other churches, whatever church is geographically the closest for you, I want to ask that you pray for the unity of that. Because Chapel Point cannot accomplish all that God wants to happen in West Michigan. We need dozens of churches rising up in the word of God through unity to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. I'll give you another passage to look at why it's so important. Right? Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. This is Paul. He's like, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. I'm begging you, make sure you walk in a way that gives, he's, what he's really saying is, John 17, make sure you walk in a way that gives glory to the Heavenly Father in your relationships and the decisions that you make and the jobs that you have and the way you spend your time, the way you spend your energy. He's saying, make sure that you walk in a manner worthy of saying, Jesus is Lord. Right? Tomorrow at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, you go home. Can you go? Can you raise your hand and go, man, I live today. I walked in a way in which I am proud to say Jesus is Lord. So he does this very thing. Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he tells us verse 2 and 3 how to do it. These are my favorite parts of scripture. This is what I want you to do. Walk in a manner worthy of, the, of giving God all glory. And then it's just very simply like, and this is what it looks like. Call me simple. And he says, with all humility and gentleness, I want you to do this by walking in all humility. Would your friend say that you're a humble person? Humility doesn't mean that you're quiet. Don't, don't equate quiet with Humility. Some people go, well, he's just a quiet man. Quiet does not mean humble. He says, with all humility, walk with all humility, with, with gentleness, with patience. I want you to bear with one another in love. And then all of verse 3. And I want you to be eager to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. The unity of Christ and the bond of peace. Unity. He's like, man, if you want to walk in a manner worthy of giving God glory, you had better walk in a way in which provides unity for all believers. Keeping unity in the midst of just a little bit of change, a little bit of opposition, is not a big deal. But I can tell you right now, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of change, unity's hard. It's over the last three years, it is the number one thing I have prayed for about this church, without a doubt. As we've walked through the last few years, we all know what the last few years have, have I, honestly, I think, revealed and exposed of, in America, throughout our world. And I have prayed so much about the unity of this body. God, please give me the, your wisdom. God, please give me discernment in making decisions. God, please let us handle ourselves with grace and with gentleness, still speaking full truth in the power of Jesus Christ. I'm asking you to continually pray for that. Because that's just another example of how important unity amongst the believer is. Why? Because when you allow anything other than godly wisdom and unity to rule the day, there are certain things that happen. One is if you do not have, and this happens in churches and in organizations all the time, right? You'll, maybe you'll recognize this as a business leader or even in a school when, when you don't have unity, one of the results is this. You, you have people who start to cave to the loudest voice. 
When you have any organization begin to cave to the loudest voice, it is a sign that often there is a lack of unity, which means there's a lack of understanding of where we're going and what we're about. That's why I'm so clear about who we are as a church and where we're going. Make no mistake about it. If we have people in this church who just want to fight for a preference of chair or paint or whatever it might be, well, we've got to have this program. We, we have no room for it. We address it quickly and firmly. So one of the things that you see in a com- any community where there's a lack of unity is they start caving to the loudest voice. Whoever's loudest, whoever's the most disruptive, they start to cave to that because most people just want to get rid of all type of opposition. They want to get rid of all type of uneasiness. And so it's easier for they don't like confrontation. Did anybody wake up today and go, man, I want confrontation? Nobody likes it. And so we came to the loudest voice. But I'll tell you right now, when you have unity, what you have is you have a place that is fertile ground for courage in speaking the truth, in speaking boldly, in living audaciously for Jesus Christ, of claiming greater territory for the kingdom of God because of the unity of what is at Chapel Point that gives me a courage to step in and to make decisions that are all about Scripture regardless of the difficulty, regardless of how hard they may or may not be. Simply asking the question, is it biblical? Is it godly? Is Holy Spirit asking of it? And if the answer is God has asked, our answer is always yes. And so we run toward the kingdom of God. That is what we get to do. That's the power of the unity. So this is, this is so vital and crucial for us to process when it comes to the high priestly prayer. Jesus is there, and he's praying. He says it in verse 11 as well. In verse 11, even when he's praying about their understanding and their relationship with the world, the disciples, he's like, I'm no longer in the world. They're in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. That's unity. And now, later on, he's praying for all of them and their relationship for all of us with our relationship with one another. He's like, God, help them be one. That they, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Our unity, especially, friends, in a world that is all about the individual wanting to get whatever they want, their preferences, their opinion of that day, our unity of surrendering preferences, of surrendering selfish goals and selfish motives is one of the greatest examples we have to the world for them to go, what's going on over there? And to to carry that unity with the joy that he speaks about, knowing already that in verse 33 of chapter 16, he's like, hey, listen, we already know that he's overcome the world. So he speaks in in, in chapter chapter 17 that we can have that same joy. But a lot of us struggle to live in unity because we want to live for self. And you cannot have biblical, godly unity and live for self. You want to know how I know that? Because he's praying for unity and he's about to give up himself 
so that we might have life through the blood of Jesus. So I told you four parts. First part, our relationship with God. Second part, our relationship with the world, the disciples' relationship with the world. And then the relationship that we have with other believers. And then lastly, is just, I would say 24 through 26, is just about the love of God. It's a synopsis, it's a summary of everything that's already been stated of his prayer. I just want to read it for you. This is what he says. Father. That, um, anybody, if you're a parent, raise your hand. Who remembers the first time they heard the word dad? And I don't know what the real story is, but I prefer to think that that was my kid's first word. I love the name dad, dad. Like, ah, I love it. And my kids are old now. It's kind of hard to get a college student and say, dad, dad. He doesn't think it's cool for some reason. I don't know why. But I love the word dad. And I I love being called, uh, and this isn't often. This is when it gets deep in our relationship. They're like, hey, father. That's rare for in my house. There's not a lot of, hey, father. But Jesus, this gets me, because Jesus, remember, context is so important. One of the greatest reasons we struggle with understanding the word of God is because we don't understand the context in which it's being spoken into. And so here's Jesus. He just had the last supper. He just had his last physical meal. He knew this. He just told one of the followers, one of his disciples, hey, you're going to betray me. And he retreats to the garden to pray. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Listen to this. I made known to all of these people your name, and I will continue to make your name known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's praying that the Father would receive even more glory, that he would be known throughout the world because of what he's about to give up in just a few hours. And so, yeah, I know some of you think I'm a little maybe off my rocker, but do I think your marriage should be a complete resemblance of giving glory to the Father? I do. 
Do I think the way that you conduct yourself at work and at school and language that you use tomorrow matters? I do. Because if you claim to know Jesus Christ, everything in your life is to reflect the greatness of who he is. All glory to our heavenly father. Do I think that your relationships matter and the marriage, not only that you have today, but what you're going to have tomorrow, the way that you pray for each other? I do. Your relationship with your neighbor, do I think it matters? I do. Because God wants glory and is deserving and is worthy of glory in all things. Amen? And we will fight as a church in unity to always give glory to the Heavenly Father. Because he's worthy of all praise. God's glory, our unity. May he receive the glory that is due to only him. So Lord, I come before you and I celebrate you. May we know what it is to heap glory at your feet, God. May we know what it is to live in unity with one another. fully recognize and understand that there are probably some marriages sitting here right now or watching online that they're not giving glory to your name. There are people in their habits that aren't going to give glory to your name. There are people in their words aren't giving glory to your name, but God, may we give glory to your name. Living together with the saints, declaring your goodness. Nice name.